0: we live in capitalism its power seems inescapable but so did the divine right of kings any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings resistance and change often begin in art and very often in our art the art of words ursula k leguin Welcome to Write Good, the only podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. Sci-fi and fantasy are imaginative genres that can show us new, impossible worlds. Sometimes they offer us escape from our dreary lives. Thanks, Harley. But there's one thing contemporary SFF can't seem to escape. As Mark Fisher once said, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. In this episode of Write Good, Simon McNeil joins us to talk about writing beyond the end of history. Thanks for coming on.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's it's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I invited you on because you have a blog that's very good where you write really, really thoughtful essays about sci-fi, speculative fiction, culture in general, but a lot about sci-fi and fantasy fiction, and you bring in a lot of philosophy and theory that i I I should read more theory, but I don't.
1: Well, it's it's funny you mentioned that. I had the blog kicking around. And if you look, there's a pretty long gap in the history. And I had just started kind of reintegrating some of the philosophical work that I'd done when I was a student back into my writing when I kind of stopped blogging for a while. And then after COVID hit, I, I got back in. I'd had some struggles with reading, actually, before COVID. Hmm. And going back to philosophy was a way that I managed to break myself out of that struggle. So I, I picked up Kierkegaard again, who, who I'd read a lot before and I just started reading him again. And from him, I got into Sartre. And then I just, it, it reopened the whole old world for me.
0: Wow. When I had trouble um, with reading, I just read a manga.
1: I, I've I'm got feeling a like a slouch shelf, here. <laughs> <laughs> I got a couple on my shelf. I'm excited to read eventually. Um, that I've been sitting there for a while. I, I got Uzumaki back nice. in December. Hell in December. Yeah. Oh, it looks so good. I can't wait.
0: Yeah, it's good. It's sick.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so I I, I decided when I was working on the blog again, because I've been playing with novels, but the one I'm working on has come together very slowly. So I didn't really have anything topic-wise I really needed to discuss to keep myself focused on a novel, per se. And I, I got this idea in my head that I could kind of point science fiction and fantasy back toward philosophical interpretations that... But I think, especially during the New Wave and earlier, were very much present in the criticism. But it seemed to have dropped off a little bit. So I kind of started. I started writing about books and movies and um, what we could see about them and and how they can be used as a lens to understanding our world.
0: Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. it... A, a lot of writing about contemporary SFF is very, like, fan-geekish and, and not particularly deep, so it is actually really refreshing to read a blog that's not that and is, in fact, sort of, oh, yeah, let, let me quote these various uh, Marxist philosophers, and, and I'm going <laughs> to also quote a another philosopher from the year 76 B.C., and you're like, okay, all right, that, that sure is different from, you know, Geek Mania Funkoville or something. <laughs> like...
1: Well, it's also been great though because I've got to meet a lot of other people who are working in the same direction. So, Kurt over at Blood Knife and, and, and some of the work he's doing, he's great. And also, there's a few folks that are on the theory side of things that have really kind of been starting to approach science fiction from the other side. The folks over at Makitic Unconscious Happy Hour have been doing a lot of work with Dune and using Dune as a lens for approaching theory.
0: Oh, that's neat.
1: Yeah. So that so I've really been cool. really excited to have the chance to meet a lot of exciting people via the blog and and get to know some of the other people who are really working on this.
0: Yeah, definitely. Now there was one essay that I wanted to that I well the essay that made me want to invite you on was one called Gothic Anti-Realism: Art for the Unsatisfied. And a lot of this essay is about Harley, would you chill? My God, you're so whiny right now. You're so whiny. What it says is, the way it starts is, we are being crushed under realism. We are all living in a world after the age of no alternative. We are all cursed to see ourselves as survivors of a failed apocalypse, the so-called end of history. So, before we go on, probably I'd say a good percentage of our readers are already familiar with this concept, but would you like to explain what is meant by the phrase, the end of history?
1: So back earlier within the development of neoliberalism, a theorist, a political theorist named Francis Fukuyama basically created an apologia for it in which he argued that there had been this steady progression of the political and historical order toward a an international consensus where the grand conflicts of empires would fade away into an end of of, of mass history, effectively. He was wrong, and he actually yeah, he admits quite wrong. openly that he was wrong. <laughs> yeah,
0: um, <laughs> yeah his, it, from what I gather, his contemporary career is mainly him explaining various ways that he was wrong about the end of history, because like mm-hmm. that's kind of the big thing he's known for.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's to his credit that he was willing to reexamine his ideas.
0: Oh and, yeah, yeah. 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 To not just say like, no, history ended. It's yeah. fine. There's no more. Yeah. That's not history. No, it isn't. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but, but it's still, that, that apology is still lurking around and it still has a lot of power, especially because it's quite useful for people who are ruling within the neoliberal order. A lot of people within countries like Canada and the United States who are in the dominant economic and political classes they still get a lot of money from us living in a neoliberal hellscape. And so that apologia still has power, even though the guy that originally came up with it doesn't really agree with it anymore.
0: Right. And oh, another term we might want to define, because I, this is a word that people like to toss around, and I've even heard people say, oh, this is just a meaningless buzzword. And I have heard it used to describe when corporations are woke, that's what it means. <laughs> what is neoliberalism?
1: Okay, so... Neoliberalism is a specific order, a specific ordering to power that occurs within capitalism in which states divest themselves of of public assets and move those public assets into the private sphere. Generally, they do this through an ideological process of persuading publics that the private sector will be more effective. Often what they'll do is they'll create crises within sectors, like they'll screw up healthcare, and then they'll sell it to the private sector saying, oh, well, private sector will do it better. And this is mostly just a process to enrich people. But it also brings with it a lot of baggage for how people are expected to see the world. For this, Margaret Thatcher is really informative, where she said that there, there's no society, there's only um, individuals and their families. And this this narrowing of the world to these small familial units that are basically just collections of isolated individuals is well, it's kind of terrifying.
0: Yeah, yeah. now we're going to get to the nuclear family and family in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know you're going to have a lot to say about it and a lot of interesting stuff to say. Mm-hmm. But let's define one more thing that a phrase that is probably going to be used. So let's get down what it means before we start using it. Right. What is capitalist realism and how does it relate to the end of history?
1: So capitalist realism is something that Mark Fisher largely expanded upon in a book by the same title and it's it's a, it's effectively an ideological system that exists to keep people within capitalism and it it involves several different processes that kind of occlude The idea of there being an outside to capitalism, trying to make capitalism Mm. seem like this inevitable and natural thing. Mm. Um, And of course, the end of history, that idea that everything was progressing toward this moment is part of what creates that sense of inevitability. Fisher was very much an art critic, and a lot of his work was focused on art. And so as a result, Fisher uses a lot of examples from within art to demonstrate how capitalist realism reifies itself
0: Mm. so what's one example that that fisher discusses
1: oh if i recall correctly he talked a fair bit about the terminator movies um in that book
0: well yeah that's intellectual (laughs) that's what i like
1: yeah no he's he's actually great for this honestly fisher another book of fisher's the weird and the eerie was one of the key things that really got me back into writing criticism it just inspired me he was an amazing critic Especially his three favorite things to work on from criticism were were books, movies, and music. And, well, that's two out of three for me because books and movies are my two favorite things to write about. (laughs) He was really valuable as a critic and, 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 and also at showing how criticism could be part of a political project. So he very frequently, like within The Weird and The Eerie, if you look at any given essay that might be focusing on a punk rock song from the 70s, or on the early novels of Margaret Atwood, or on all these different topics, but at the same time he's kind of getting at part of the 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 um, subjective condition of late capitalism and mm. and how we feel these things missing in our lives. So he's just mm. he was a such a wonderful critic.
0: I should probably read something of his eventually.
1: I would strongly recommend it. I would say honestly, for for people who are in art criticism, "The Weird and the Eerie is a must read. Oh,
0: okay. Jeez, well, I gotta take. I should check it out eventually. Someday, I'll add it to my long pile of "You Should Read These Books."
1: <laughs>
0: Fennel is on there currently,
1: <laughs> staring
0: at me angrily. Like, Raquel, come on, get get on it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that book was actually one of the most difficult books for me to ever read the the chapter of the wretched of the earth where he gets into the case studies of,
0: oh, of Jesus psychological Christ.
1: harm from colonial violence oh
0: whew. that sounds brutal
1: it oh it's it's not easy it is yeah. it is the fact that you know that these were real people whose lives were broken in these terrible ways just makes it so much harder yeah no because, kidding because like it's it's written like horror stories it's it, they're almost like ghost stories except they're they're true
0: that sounds like a like a difficult but necessary read, so
1: yeah, he's he, I... he was an important one.
0: yeah, no kidding. Ugh. Anyway, now there's a phrase you use in your essay on Gothic anti-realism, reflexive mm-hmm. impotence.
1: right. So I'm gonna actually read the quote that I used in in my essay here okay. to kind of start us off. And this is from capitalist realism. We know things are bad, but more than that, we know we can't do anything about it. After all, history is over. Well, that's that's me again. So we can't do anything about it is, is really what reflexive influence is going for. We see a lot of Fisher uses students as an example of this in Capitalist Realism. He talks about how frequently students kind of have a malaise where they feel like their actions don't have any great significance, like they feel quite isolated and unable to accomplish anything because of their individuality they're so alone that they just they can't they they can't accomplish anything and the idea of grouping together to accomplish something bigger never even occurs and and that's a lot of where reflexive impotence lives is right because this... we're,
0: we're such individuals we're all yeah. individuals
1: yeah and that that actually creates a problem because when 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 you stop being able to imagine yourself as part of a community or as part of a, a, an overall society of people, and instead only see yourself as being this little person with their family and that's it, when there is no society, then what can you do? You can right. most help two or three people, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, mainly just yourself and your close friends and that's it. Fuck everybody stop. else. Sorry. Can't help you. Can't help you, Harley. Sorry. Sorry. No, it's okay. I can help you. I can get your ball and throw it for you. It's okay, buddy. Chill out. All right. All right. There we go. There, I helped the cat. Okay. Another term, hyperreality.
1: So hyperreality is when elements of reality or even elements that aren't particularly part of reality are kind of expanded in importance and inflated to the point where they push out everything else. So that your sense of what reality is becomes limited by the the obscuring weight of the hyperreal so people are like well you know like there's always been markets we can't get out of buying and selling things therefore capitalism has to stick around that would be an example of hyperreality because it's it's it the, the action is taking the idea of a market as being equivalent to capital and and then crowding out the even the reality that existed that capitalism itself is a pretty new development
0: right right through most of history. I mean, it's what, only a couple of hundred years old, Mm -hmm. but it is weird that how we think like, well, that's, that's the only way to live. No, it isn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, I'm not going to say that our old pre-capitalist ways were uh, necessarily better. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be one of those weird return people who are (laughs) like, yeah, feudalism. That was great. Let's go back to that. No, no. But the the point is that it's not the only option.
1: Exactly. And I think that that Part of what becomes challenging when, when looking at history is this tendency to view it as being an evolutionary process leading to some grand moment. And right. so, of course, things have to be at their best now. When, if you look at a lot of anthropological research that has come out since, well, since after the 70s, really, until now, what we've seen is that cultures don't actually evolve exactly. They, they, they change. They change a lot. But right. they, they do so more through a, produ- a process of metastatic equilibrium, which is they'll, they'll settle into a way of being that works for the world that they're in until that world's disrupted. And then they could suddenly transform their societies. And this is how we end up getting a whole bunch of states kind of popping up all at the same time, because states create conditions where other states have to exist effectively. Mm. And so we, we, we are stuck in a rut right now. And we seem to be kind of stuck with a culture that is increasingly at odds with the world we live in, but we also have trouble knowing what's going to come next, and that's part of what's scary. And that does freeze people, too, that that fear of what's going to come next and the fact we can't know.
0: Right. Like, what I've seen mostly about what's going to come next is either more of the same or apocalypse, Mm -hmm. like that quote, basically, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. easier to imagine the end of the world.
1: And, and so there's something interesting about Apocalypse, though. Apocalypse actually really fascinates me a lot because we only ever get half of an Apocalypse with most of our Apocalypse media. We get the end of something. But if you look at how, like, if you look at, like, just example in the the, the Pro Zeta at what happens after Ragnarok, a new world arises and the gentlest of the gods who are already dead before the start of Ragnarok arise from the dead. And humans come back and animals come back and there is a new world that is a different world. Apocalypse is supposed to be revelation of a transformation, not just the end of something. But we just get stuck with zombie hordes lurching around because all we can seem to imagine is the end of something and not that there could be something else that might be different on the other side.
0: Hmm yeah yeah. Now, how are some of these concepts embodied by contemporary mainstream sFF and mainstream pop culture in general, the the end of history, capitalist realism, reflexive impotence, hyper reality?
1: We see a lot of reflexive reproduction of the current political climate in genre fiction where we'll we'll take elements of the world we're in and transpose them into a fantastical setting. But it's, it's still basically trying to talk about a culture that is the same as our culture in fundamental ways. Mm. Things like the Goblin Emperor do this a fair bit. But we also see it in work like, I'm trying to remember the name of the show. It's a television show, Altered Carbon, mm. which I know there are novels for that as well, but I haven't read them. And in that show, we get a world that is, it's still just late capitalism, only they've got flying cars. Mm. So we, we do get this tendency to either... And we see this in Star Trek Picard as well, where we see capitalism kind of creeping back into the economics of the universe. We see this also in a lot of other contemporary science fiction, where they imagine a future, and kind of hate to do dirty to cyberpunk like this, but a lot of this comes out of cyberpunk's reaction to Reaganomics. Ooh. They imagine a future that's basically just that. It's, it's neoliberalism forever. For that, I think my usual preferred example is The Difference Engine by Gibson and Sterling, because that really kind of puts forward this idea that once the technology for neoliberalism exists, inevitably we'll get workers being crushed and strikes being broken. Inevitably, the, the current world order will progress from that.
0: Mm, I see. Now, how about the idea of reflexive impotence in, in fiction? Because... It's my understanding that a, a heck of a whole lot of contemporary SFF, especially the kind of stuff that Winton's awards, mm-hmm. does pride itself on being very hopeful and rather escapist and, and cozy and comforting. So how can we have a genre that really prides itself on on being inspirational and hopeful, and yet it, it's full of reflexive impotence somehow?
1: The cozy is a trap. It's, a, it's actually cozy where a lot of that, that where my complaints with it come, is... You get, you get stuck into this idea that cozy stories frequently shrink down to focus on a small number of characters and their day-to-day relatively mundane problems. There's a, a book going around right now that's getting a lot of attention. It was just in Publishers Weekly that is literally about some adventurers in a fantasy world settling down and starting up a coffee house and dealing with some light romance and slinging coffee you also get stuff like even going back into the day with people like spider robinson and his and his books where it's literally mostly just people hanging out and partying and if you look at the political project of a lot of these books it's not to actually change anything it's the 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 fundamental message is no just things are okay if you just kind of look after your your family and this small group of people around you and you can have whimsical adventures
0: I'm thinking of what our guest Ashley Adams told me about House in the Cerulean Sea. I haven't read the book, but Mm -hmm. according to her, the message of it was kindness. Like you can Mm -hmm. you can do things with kindness. And it's considered this book that's very hopeful and inspiring and upbeat. But I mean, at the end of it, the system hasn't fundamentally changed it's one man has been kind of nice. And on one hand, I mean, I, I'm divided. And on one hand, I think it is kind of sensible to 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 show, like, hey, most of us aren't superman, you know, we yeah. have limited ability to change things, and that's okay if you've at least made some effort to be good. That's good. And that can have an influence on on the world and and that's a good thing. But is there a possibility it's like how do we strike a balance between being somewhat I guess, humble or or sensible about what how much change we can do versus just creating more annoying, like ego trip. I'm the hero of everything, right? Because to me, it seems like the I'm the the hero who single handedly saves the world fantasy. It's definitely not a very communal or, or revolutionary fantasy in its own way, right? It's still right. this hero, like yeah. I'm the Superman, I'm the Uber I'm gonna I'm I'm the one. I'm the one who does everything.
1: I, I think that it, it it's not necessary the protagonist be the one who changes things. The person who needs to change things is the author. So it, it, it isn't a matter of creating an heroic narrative necessarily. You don't have to have your character win, certainly. I love horror fiction often the protagonists lose. What you should be doing as an author is creating an effective change in your audience. And just letting them settle into a groove of feeling kind of comfy and having a, a, a frictionless ride with a couple of whimsical characters. I mean, okay, some people like that, but it's, <laughs> it's not challenging art.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think like cozy has its place. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about the idea of, yeah, here's this little slice of life novel about some goblins running a coffee house. That could be fun. You know, that could be nice to read, yeah
1: but it could be,
0: I think it could be fine. I think my issue is that this is, this is itself presented as like, this is the way forward. Mm -hmm. This is the message. Mm -hmm. Like if it was, I'm just making this nice thing. Yes. But the way I feel like the community presents it as this is a movement and like, Not really. (laughs) No, it isn't.
1: (laughs) There's there's plenty of those manifestos out there. You know that I've read a few of them. (laughs) But uh, I I think there's a tendency within art. I mean, and I, I, as much as I critique this, I don't honestly blame people that much for it because it's hard. It's really hard. There's a tendency to mix up the moral and the aesthetic. Mm. People don't like, like the question of, of the moral is, is this good? And the question of the aesthetic is, is this this beautiful? And people aren't really the best at cutting those two questions apart and looking at them. And so we often get people who get tied into this idea that their aesthetic has some sort of specific moral weight. And so when I criticize the Cozy, I'm not saying it's immoral. I'm just saying, I don't really (laughs) think it's very pretty, but, but it can be very challenging because some people do kind of cross over that line where they start going not, Oh, well, I, I think this is kind of ugly art, but instead saying, well, I think this is bad art and and that's, I think, when we kind of run, run astray a little bit.
0: Right, right. Like the, the idea of depiction is endorsement, where well, you're showing something that's upsetting, you're showing something that's bad, therefore you must be cool with this, which, mm-hmm. no.
1: Exactly. And, I mean, it's that sort of attitude that kept me away from Berserk for far too long.
0: Or or that keeps
1: other people away from some of Joe Abercrombie's really good work. Speaking of heroism and the problem of heroes, Joe Abercrombie's book, The Heroes, um, is an exceptional work of really examining the question of what heroism is and what it means in a way that approaches both, both how it can be a force of moral positivity, but also a very dark thing. Hmm. And, and I think it really problematizes the question of what it means to be a hero quite well. Um, hmm. Also, the people in it are mean, and they swear a lot. And so a lot of people go, oh, well, he's just glorifying bad people.
0: Good people don't use swears. What? <laughs> that's
1: crazy to me. And, and there's some horrible stuff in those books, because there's some horrible stuff to heroism that's existed for a very long time. Like, um, okay, so one of my favorite books is is The Romance of Three Kingdoms, which is one of the earliest novels ever written. It's a Chinese novel. And it's a fictionalization of a period of Chinese history where the country split into three kingdoms, where the, the, the empire split into three kingdoms. And one of the eventual kings early on in the book is a man named Cao Cao, who's sometimes called the hero of chaos. And he's imprisoned because of some political machinations that don't go well and flees from a friend breaks him out of jail before he's executed and he flees and he goes to a a house of an ally, a relative. And the ally greets him really nicely and then goes out to like buy some stuff and leave Tzatzau together with the the retainers for the household. And the retainers are going and slaughtering a pig for holding a a banquet for Tzatzau, but The way they're describing doing it sounds really sinister. Mm. And he's super paranoid because he's just broken out of jail and they're going to execute him. So he thinks that the retainers are going to kill him. So he rushes out with his sword. He slaughters all of them. And then flees the house and meets his ally who had sheltered him on the road and murders him. And his buddy who broke him out of jail is still with him and asks him, well, why did you do that? And he says, it would be better for me to harm the world than for the world to harm me. Mm-hmm. This guy's a hero and a king. He is called a hero. That's his epithet, the hero of chaos. But like examining heroism and including that sort of horrible action as well, I think, is something that fantasy needs to do more of, mm. because otherwise we do get into these hero-worship fantasies, where people think, oh no, the hero is always good and righteous.
0: Now, in your essay, you made a really interesting point about found family and contemporary mainstream pop culture. So... First off, my understanding is that found family is an expression that came from the queer community. It refers to the way that queer people are often thrown out by their biological families, rejected by their biological families. And so they have had to find each other and support each other socially, emotionally and materially. And that this has led to these complicated and very messy interpersonal interdependent relationships. How is that different from the way we use the term found family in pop culture today? And how does that concept of found family slot neatly into capitalist realism?
1: So I'm going to start by by saying that if I'm going to critique found family at all, I'm going to do it specifically and explicitly through a queer lens. And the queer critique of found family is that it doesn't go anywhere near far enough, Mm -hmm. that the creation of community shouldn't necessarily be structured along the lines of the nuclear family. That's itself a very contingent way of looking at family. There's lots of other ways that we have historically seen what constitutes a family, and it's one that's very narrow compared to a lot of past understandings of family, like cutting it down to as as Deleuze and Guattari put it, mommy, daddy, me, that that edible triangle. That's it's a very small family and it's a very small community. So what I want to see more of with the imagination of community, especially and and in the imagination of what what family could be is less a reproduction of that that found family dynamic that that maps the family onto the nuclear family, which is what we see a lot of, and mm-hmm. instead a more radical reimagination of what it means to be within a community. A good example might be Lana Wachowski's television show Sensate where those characters have families that are their nuclear families that they grew up in. But then they also have the sensei cluster and they also have the people that they've come into contact with. And as the show grows by, you get this kind of snowball forming this accretion of people who are tied together into this community by these invisible threads. And I think that that's a really good way of kind of mapping out something beyond the found family for creating community.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is something. Now I I note that um, reading a lot of 20th century novels, especially from the later half of the 20th century, from the 1950s on, mm-hmm. there's this real focus on the sanctity of the nuclear family, That, which, again, we really can't stress enough, the nuclear family is not a traditional family structure at all. It is very modern. It's very recent. It's not normal throughout history to define family in this very very small cluster traditionally family you lived with extended family you had extended family ties it wasn't just mom dad and and the the son and the daughter mm-hmm. so 20th century literature though in, in, in pop culture and tv and movies has a lot of this me and my family against the world mm-hmm. if you look at older books that's not You don't really see as much of that, and people really belonged to different modes of community, which were wider, often extended beyond even the extended family, and involved the church or your village or your political organizations, your labor unions. But 20th century pop culture cuts all that out, and it's me and my wife and my children. A ton of Stephen King novels follow this pattern. The Amityville Horror and and Poltergeist follow this. The new Tom Cruise adaptation of War of the Worlds is this nuclear family versus aliens. The original novel wasn't a nuclear family. And I find it super interesting that as late stage capitalism has made it much more difficult for younger generations to even have that kind of nuclear family, like we're so atomized that we're not even having romantic relationships, we're not having sex anymore, And even happily married people are so buried in student loan debt that they're delaying children or just not even having them. So as just even having a nuclear family becomes so difficult because of economic situation, we get now this new concept of, well, this new, a watered down version of found family mapped onto it as sort of a substitute for the nuclear family that's still operating as this little unit of my small cluster against the world. Fuck everybody else.
1: Well, there's a very corporate structure at the end, right? Like, there th- to a certain extent, the nuclear family is really good for molding people into effective consumers. It gets you buying houses, it gets you buying cars, because if every little family has to have their own little house, then you can't all be living in the same place where the rest of your family is. It really, it really kind of walls off people into smaller units where, where they'll be more likely to buy stuff to fill the hole in their lives. And I don't think that uh, because so much of our art is coming from this mass lens where it's, it's, it's mediated by large companies. They don't necessarily want to upset that apple cart, you know? So it does help to show us a family that is very much the same and just say, but yeah, no, you can have two dads. It's fine.
0: Right, Or Um, it's a group of friends, but they kind of follow that mm -hmm. structure anyway.
1: And honestly, if we look at a lot of pop culture found families, they have a dad and mom. Yeah. Like, they do. Like, uh, like it, it, it's very common in a lot of these stories for there to be a character who fulfills a patriarchal role. The character honestly, Mad role
0: Max a Fury Road, role. you could totally argue Mad Max mm-hmm. Fury Road.
1: Mm-hmm. Like,
0: Furiosa and Max are totally the mom and dad on a road trip.
1: <laughs> Bringing <Yeah>. the kids. <laughs> and and in less well-developed de- <laughs> uh, well pieces, you also have Firefly.
0: Oh yeah yeah. I somehow never saw that one. All my friends were obsessed with it and I and I never got into it and now I feel extremely smug. Like who was right? Who's right all along? It was me. You told me how good it was. Who's laughing now?
1: That that was really the pivot point for me with that with that writer. I I had been very much into Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel when I was a kid and Firefly hit and I was just like, mm, "No, I'm not sure." I don't know I know
0: <laughs> I do think it's kind of impressive that like the show it it lasted one season and the fans made such a big enough stink that they mm. released a movie based on it and that bombed too like yeah. that's kind of cool. <laughs> it's like when people tricked the company into releasing morbius twice
1: that was <laughs> oh, so that cool was, that was wonderful that was it was
0: great I loved it
1: i i I am half tempted to actually watch morbius just because of that of course I won't <laughs> but, but uh. But half tempted.
0: (laughs) I wouldn't watch it sober. No. No, That's all. You watch it watch it with equally under the influence of something friends, I think, would be a pretty good time.
1: Yeah. If you if you were with the right group of people, then then you could have some fun just kind of riffing on it, I suppose. Yeah. But um I don't know. It's, it's been a long time since I've had a bunch of people together for a movie, so Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I would give Stephen King this. Is at least with some of his depictions of the nuclear family, he understood that there was a problem at the center of it. Oh yeah. Like The Shining is a good example of that where where really he just rips apart the whole idea of the patriarch and just really lays it bare as being something that is nothing but a a cause of violence. Right. And that's 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 pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, he doesn't always hit as well as he did in The Shining.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you write that many novels that fast, they're not all going to be, they're not all going to be amazing. Exactly. And also when you're banging out that many novels that fast on the amount of cocaine he was on, there's, there's going to be some (laughs) interesting choices made in the books you're writing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I think with a lot of that media, it's, it's simply that it's in this soup, this ideological soup that, that contains these elements of what we consider constitutes a family. And right. and that brings with it these hierarchies that should be abolished, and it brings with it these limits that should be abolished. And when I criticize the family, that's, that's really what I'm saying. It's not that there's any problem with people being in families, but it's that we should be breaking the boundaries that family sets around the outside world.
0: Yeah, definitely. Now, let's switch gears a little bit. Tell me about the problem with the middle of culture. What does mm. highbrow culture and lowbrow culture have in common? This is another one of your essays.
1: Yeah, I'm not very fond of middlebrow art. The issue I've got has to do with the willingness to take risks. I really do prefer art that takes risks. I, I, I prefer a grandiose failure over something that kind of hits the middle of the road every single time. And you get two places in art where there's a lot of risk-taking. And those are at the 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 far ends so if you look at avant-garde art a lot of it is very nerdy a lot of it is deliberately off-putting um a a great example of this that, that came around recently there was a video that was circulated that was literally just a woman screaming while a man smashed the heck out of a garbage can with a baseball bat
0: yes yeah i saw that video and i Mm. think there's a woman leaning on a tree observing it going like the fuck is this
1: yeah and i mean my initial reaction to that was like "Ooh, goody i actually really enjoyed them but that that's very much in the model of avant-garde of of being that kind of deliberately off-putting attempt to to break norms and that's definitely a form of risk. And it's one that usually operates in the higher art space. It's like, I, I guarantee you all those guys are in an art school at some point in time. Oh, yeah. But then at the other end of things, you get a lot of risk is is in trash. Yes. Um, a lot of old pulps, a lot of, of other very disposable media, like Stephen King writing a bunch of novels while he's high on cocaine. You get these massive outputs where there's not as much scrutiny on making sure that you're always going to hit all your targets because you're just spamming it out. And that takes a lot of risks too, yeah. and sometimes they might be sloppily ex- executed, but sometimes you get something that ends up genius as a result. There's a a movie called Duel to the Death. It's a it's a, it's an old uh, kung fu movie that's about two rival schools that have a tournament that they hold once a generation where the best student from each school will meet up and have a sword fight until only one one is left. And it, these two guys that are from these rival schools get to know each other while they're getting prepped for the sword fight and realize they don't really want to kill each other, but they gotta. And it's trash. It is badly executed. The special effects are terrible. They just like splash blood over everything as much as they can. It's, it's trash cinema, but it also hits at something ineffable by its willingness to take risks. And that's what bothers me about a lot of middle brow art is a lot of middle brown art doesn't really care so much about taking risks. It just wants to produce something that will be inoffensive and enjoyable to as many people as possible.
0: Mm. Yeah. And there's a lot of rules.
1: It does lead to a lot of rules because you want to be able to produce a consistent product, but I don't want art to be a consistent product. Mm. Um, like a lot of the, a lot of the, aesthetic theorists that i like like people like Wal- walter benjamin we're really quite concerned about the impact of mechanical reproduction on art and the tendency to make art less unique through reproducing it and while that ship sailed to a certain extent we're going to have mechanical reproduction of art we can at least have art that within its reproduced set is still unique and special in some way and isn't just all following rules to produce a, a consistent product
0: mm-hmm. I think someone's lighting off firecrackers in my neighborhood. Apologies if you can hear that.
1: Um. Nope. Yeah, it's oh. being filtered out. Oh, good.
0: But, uh, nice. I guess this mic is... I, I used the mic that doesn't pick up as much background stuff, so hopefully it shouldn't yeah. be too bad. But yeah, yeah, that is something interesting about the sort of highbrow and lowbrow art. You've got the quote-unquote highbrow and lowbrow. You've, you've got the people who are breaking the rules because they're doing it in a deliberate way because they've studied music theory or art theory or whatever. And then you have the people who are breaking the rules because they don't know what rules are. They don't know how they're supposed to be doing this. And in either case, a lot of times the results are not not exactly fun or they're extremely messy, but they're super interesting. And I've found Mm -hmm. that too, that almost every artsy-fartsy snob person I know has a handful of absolutely trash movies or novels that they absolutely fucking love or mm-hmm. they'll be like you got to listen to this band it's my favorite band and it's a band of three people who clearly cannot play the guitar all of their instruments are out of tune none of the lyrics make sense and they're like so good they're so good man i i, I guess but there's something magic in it
1: <laughs> yeah and 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 these art that comes from outside of formal education can also sometimes pop up in unexpected ways that are are quite unique that aren't just trash too and those are really important as well like wasn't the first
0: novel written outside of a formal education right my understanding is that the first novel was written by a woman and this was in a time when women were not formally formally educated
1: that would be tale of genji we're talking about yeah 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 exactly and and you do get a lot of that innovation when you get outside views coming into art one one that i loved back when i was in school was edward um Edward Leeds was an engineer who lived in Florida back in like the late 19th century, early 20th century. And he built this thing called Coral Castle, which is yeah. this series of rock and coral formations, just architecture and basically like exterior furniture. But it's all quite abstracted and unusual. And the guy didn't have a single day of art education in his life. He was an engineer, but he just right. went and built this massive structure that ended up being a brilliant work of art that that is remembered 70 years after his death.
0: That's extraordinary. Now, your essay calls Gothic, the enemy of realism. Mm hmm. First off, let's define gothic. It doesn't necessarily mean people in black lipstick. <laughs> and secondly, what does that mean for gothic? How is gothic the enemy of realism?
1: So, so first of all, just putting my bonafides out there, I was a huge goth when I was in university. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> black lipstick, yes, absolutely. But notwithstanding that, gothic—the gothic refers to a movement largely within literature, architecture, and and music to a lesser extent—that that was very much a response to industrialization it's focused a lot on the issues of social change especially from the perspective of the remnants of the old order that won't go away and so you end up getting a lot of crumbling mansions and windswept moors you get a lot of uh, byronic protagonists you get a lot of ghost stories you get a lot of old families with
0: terrible secrets
1: Old families with terrible secrets. One of the best people writing this right now is Sylvia Moreno Garcias, who is who's uh, brilliant at writing. Like her, her her book Mexican Gothic is something that people should definitely read. But it's it's a a, a long standing movement within art, within cinema. The best piece of Gothic cinema to come out recently would be Crimes of the Future, which I was kicking myself after I wrote that essay on the Gothic, and then <laughs> I went and saw Crimes of the Future like the next day, and I was like, oh. I could have used this so much of this essay. <laughs> but as for why I see goth the Gothic as being an enemy of realism, it's it, it's because the Gothic is about the way things break down. And so much of what we treat as realism is about this reification of the present moment, like I was saying before, how how especially with capitalist realism, it's it's this crowding out of the future with with the present. And the Gothic looks at that and says, Well, let's let's just clear all this away. It, it has to go. And and I really do think that clearing all the, the rubble of the decaying order away is something we need to do to, to help us to envision new worlds that could be better worlds.
0: Now, how can we as artists and writers escape capitalist realism?
1: Well, we can't do it on our own. This is, th- there's an idea that, that pops up in a lot of revolutionary theory that, that says that insurrection has to occur simultaneously and spontaneously so everybody has to individually decide together to do something effectively i don't think that artists can solo their way out of capitalism any more than anybody else can i think what we need to do is to start creating communities that look at art through lenses that aren't explicitly capitalistic Mm. and that that try to push the boundaries of imagination away from where we are now and into exploring other possible permutations of how we could exist. I see. And I think we should take back the apocalypse and start doing something more interesting with it.
0: Yeah. There's been a lot of apocalypse movies and stories. They have.
1: And most of them are very poor. Yeah. And that bothers me because I I think apocalypse is a very interesting, important thing. And I think we can see that, that tendency with apocalypse. If you look at something like the fall of the house of Usher, where the revelation of the terrible secret is also the collapse of the house. And, mm. and that idea that apocalypse should include some sort of revelatory act that, that brings about the new and the sudden and the unexpected, I think is what we really need to, to bring back into that genre.
0: Mm. Yeah. Now, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the very popular, in, in my mind it's very misguided, idea that art has the magical almost magical ability to shape reality. Like Mm -hmm. consuming moral art will make you a better person and will make Mm -hmm. the world a better place. And consuming immoral art, however you choose to define that, will make you a worse person and make the world a worse place. Now, we Mm -hmm. know that that's kind of silly. That's a little ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But knowing that, then what is the value of imaginative art, of gothic art, of anti-realist art, of art that goes beyond the end of history? Why does any of this matter?
1: Well, first of all, because it's beautiful. For, for me, I'm, I'm very much into aesthetics having value outside the realm of the ethical. So art being something we enjoy, art being something beautiful, is of its own enough reason for art. As for why to give art a political project, I think it's because we can't really avoid it. And it's not even so much that it has to operate at a moral level, as that the political level operates both in the realm of ethics and also in the realm of aesthetics. Politics is as much about what's beautiful as it is about what's good or what's true. And so if, we, if we're if we going to, um, just because of the nature of politics, have art as a vehicle of politics, then we should have it have some good politics, I suppose. But that doesn't also mean that it can't be good art, and it should be beautiful in its own right and, and, and stand up as a work of art, notwithstanding its politics. Mm,
0: I see. Okay we've been talking for a little bit under an hour. Uh, so why don't we try it, wrapping things up? Was there anything else you wanted to, any other wisdom you wanted to impart upon <laughs> us before we go? <laughs> anything that like you should have talked
1: about more. Um, yeah. Part part of why I like horror, and I've been very attracted to horror lately, has been because I really like the idea of, of the, the sudden shock of realization of, some sort of absolute difference. And I think that notwithstanding any specific political project, that's something that art can do really well is be revelatory to people that we can, that, that things can be different in fundamental ways. And it's not that any given work of art, it's not like Guernica is going to stop the Spanish civil war. You know, like it's not that any given work of art is going to change the political situation on its own that's the whole thing is we don't want to be on our own we want to be operating together collectively and art's a part of that
0: mm. and that it can kind of bring people together I guess
1: yeah and 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 in that it's it, that it is part of that collective action like we can't separate art out from the rest of human endeavor it's still part of that whole economic and political sphere and so I think, there's a certain level of, of, of wanting to accept it's not a matter of instructing people to be good so much as it is being good through the creation of good art.
0: Mm. I see. I think I get it. Okay. Now, before we go, where can our listeners find and support your work?
1: Well, I have one novel published through a small press in Canada called Brain Leg Press. It's called The Black Trillium. I also have a blog, which is simonmcneil.com.
0: What is the Black Trillium about?
1: It's a post-apocalyptic wuxia story about anarchist rebels. Oh,
0: no, you did a post-apocalyptic story.
1: (laughs) About anarchist rebels fighting against a monarchy. Um, (laughs) It was also five years ago. But uh, no, I I had a lot of fun with it. It It's basically a love letter to one of my favorite authors. There's an author named Xin Yong, who um, is just an absolute treasure. One of the greatest fantasy authors of all time and when i was first starting out as an author i couldn't think of anything i wanted to do more than basically show my appreciation for him and that eventually went from i I started off as a a, an abortive attempt at a translation project and i realized i wasn't up to the task and i ended up writing a, a novel instead nice so i i would write it differently now but i love it still because it's it's the book i wrote
0: yeah definitely yeah all right well thanks for coming on the show
1: Thank you. It was great to be on.
0: Yeah. And thank you, audience, for listening. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash writegood and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good.
1: This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns... Please write to us at writegood at kitty That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at Kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. KittySneezes.com in
0: color.